Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point. I'm Rachel Lyon here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how are you? Can we make it quick? Because I really want to jump to this week's guest. I'm fine. (laughs) So I am so excited. We have on the podcast joining us today, um, technology reporter Shira Frankel at the New York Times. Uh, She has just written a book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, with Cecilia Kong. And I, I have to say, I read this in one sitting. I mean, literally, I couldn't turn the pages fast enough. I was getting paper No kidding? Cuts. I was so excited. And I'm still shook. Like, it, after reading it, you know, the totality of everything that you guys captured in your reporting, I'm still shook. So welcome to the podcast, Shira. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much. And thank you for that amazing compliment. It's what we wanted. We wanted it to be not, we wanted it to be a good book about Facebook, but we really wanted it to be a page turner. Okay, hold on. I, I feel so in so insufficient right now. It's 321 pages, and I was not able to read it all in one sitting. It's a fascinating read. Don't take anything away from that. And I'm a quick, prolific reader, but damn, Rachel, that's impressive. I know. The only other time I've done that was for the Da Vinci Code. So take, <laughs> take from that what you will. That's even... <laughs> Yeah, we need some help here, but okay. I I just, you know, I think there's been a lot of books written about Facebook and they often are really comprehensive. They get really into the weeds of lots of different facets of that company because it's, you know, it's a massive company. It touches on so many different business models. And, you know, I think we just kind of wanted to focus on this, this core question of like, who are the people running Facebook? Why do they make the decisions they've made? And what impact have they had on society? And we thought if we kept it really focused on that idea and that prism, that we would keep you, we would keep that thorough line. We would keep you reading from chapter to chapter. And and you absolutely well, worked with did. Rachel. I mean, I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm, a, I'm, I, I, I do you not I, care about society? Do you not care about democracy, <laughs> Eric? There were some great questions as as we were talking before we got started. The back cover, it just it you you read it and it's like, calm down, breathe. We hear you. We never meant to upset you. And you read through, and I'm like. What do they want me to interpret from this? And then I start getting in my mind and then I dug into it. And the questions, the concepts, the, the, the ideas that are brought up, the decisions they have to make, which today, even in society, we're still making these decisions. And it is not a black and white decision. It was a fascinating read. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we decided to, so the back cover is a series of apologies by Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg. And the reason we did that is because as reporters, that was funny, it's it's a lot of how we started our reporting process for this book, which is we had spent so much time writing one-off articles after each one of those apologies, like, you know, Facebook messed up, Facebook apologizing, Mm -hmm. apologizing Facebook and, you know, specifically Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg saying they'll never do it again. And as reporters, when you start with that, you're like, wait, there's a, there's a pattern here. There's something happening. It's not mm-hmm. just one article or two articles. It's, it's at this point, dozens of articles. And if we remind readers of that on the back cover of these are all the mistakes, when you're reading the book, we hope you kind of like keep that in mind and think, oh, that's right. This is like mistake number five or mistake number six. And they keep saying they'll do better. And why aren't they doing better? 
Yes, that's that's what struck me too. It's, you know, in in the security world, right, we're so numb because it's like, oh, another breach is just 500 million user accounts, whatever. And and you forget, and, and when you look like your book at the totality, right, and, and you're looking at, you know, particularly that period of, of the election, right, to kind of present day, it's striking um, just what an impact it is and the cascading effect that we're going to be seeing for, for many years to come. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I just, I sat in silence after I finished it. Cause I just, I had to like absorb it all. I just, what remarkable reporting it was. So too, I just, I, you guys are amazing reporters. So I do want to, you know, thank you for that, for being, you know, so talented at writing, but also, you know, so good at reporting because that's not easy to do. It's, it's hard <laughs> to do something building up contacts like that. Right. And, and really getting in there and being able to dig in and get to the inside. So thank you yeah. to you, uh, you and Cecilia for that. Cause I, I, I just really appreciated it. Thank you. It was, um, you know, I would say it was, it helped a lot that I had a co-author on this and she was in Washington. I was out in the Bay area. I live in Oakland and did most of the reporting really in Menlo park, but I think that helped because Facebook is a really, um, you know, it's really, well, I was going to say polarized, but that's not, it's fractured almost between the policy side of the company and those in Washington yes. and then the security teams that are in one part of Menlo park and then the product people that are in a different part of Menlo park. And, when we and, and the employees it, too, right? I mean, right. the employees are even saying, hey, which way yeah. do we go? Right. Totally. And like, I can't tell you how many times I would, we would be focusing on a specific meeting and I would go talk to my sources and Cecilia would go talk to her sources. And we realized that our own source, the sources had no idea what the other people in the wow. room were thinking or doing or what the motivations were. And we were like, wow. oh, they have no idea. Like this book is going to complete. And we got that feedback after the book was published from some, some executives, even at Facebook, they were like, oh, I had no idea that those were the other opinions in the room. I had no wow. idea when I said that the reaction was this. And I just thought, God, that's so striking because they're this company that's all about transparency and communication and their own employees have no <laughs> idea what's happening. And, and they just have all these questions about what's happening in other parts of the company. But there, there are really difficult decisions that they have to make. Zuckerberg and, and, and the team, they've got to make these hard decisions. And in, in the beginning, it talks about the accessibility to confidential or user data. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yes. And something almost as simple as that, which you would think is so easy, right? It's not, should we, should we allow the, uh, you know, Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's messages to be published if they're, you know, factual or not, or, or somebody else's a hate group's message, whatever. This is how do we allow engineering or somebody access to the data so they can do their job better? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I think that's an important example because you'd think that would be black and white, right? Like, isn't user data right. sacrosanct? Isn't right. The, the right, you know, user's privacy, this, this isn't, and just again, to back up for a minute here, we're not talking about like, you know, a photo that I posted or does Shira, Shira Frankel a male or a female? Like we're not right. we're talking about the kind of intricate data that Facebook builds on you through years. You know, we're talking about predictive data. Like, am yes. I likely to buy a house? Am I likely to have a child? We're talking about my real-time location information if I have Facebook on my phone. This is really, really specific data that Facebook has access to. And they were giving their engineers total access to that because it made it faster for them to right. code and create programs. And to me, that's such a like typical example of Facebook's calculus and specifically Mark Zuckerberg's calculus, which is... For the company to be successful, it had to grow as quickly as possible. The right. move fast and break things motto, which 
okay, technically they changed it, but let's be real here. Every engineer at the company says, this is still our motto. And can I curse? Is it okay if I... Absolutely. Sure. We're a clean podcast. <laughs> Break that. Let's go. So for most engineers we spoke to that work there right now say that they're like, one of their key mottos is fuck it, ship it. Yeah. Yep. It's not check it carefully, make sure it's secure. <laughs> make sure it's, no, it's, it's, it's fuck it, ship it. And so if that's what's driving... I think we have a show title, guys, Rachel. <laughs> oh, there goes our clean rating, but that's okay. So, so what, uh-huh. what does that do though, Cher? I mean, how does that change? So what, it, what it does is, is, is it creates these decisions like, okay, well, we want engineers to fuck it, chip it. We want them to get these products out. And so let's just give them access to user data because they can test things in real time. They want to make a new little, I don't know, fireworks display that goes off when you wish somebody a happy birthday. Right, right. Let them test that out on a thousand people by watching their real time reaction. Do they like it? Do they not like it? And that way, like we get really quick data and it tells us, yes, let's roll out this product. No, let's not roll out that product. I think it's awesome until I start looking as an engineer into your whole entire history you've put up there, private messages and everything. Right. Because I just met you on a dating app and I want to uh, know a whole lot about you. I want to be, I'm a stalker. Right. It's great until that point, right? That's the issue, right? And and we opened the book with this one report that was created by um, Alex Stamos, who joins mm-hmm. the company as their first CISO, the first head of security. And one of the first things he does, he does this comprehensive security assessment and he flags it. And he's like, you guys have fired 52 people just in the last 18 months for abusing access right. to data. And it's by and large men that are right. spying on women that they're interested in, just right. to be clear. I mean, there's people doing other things, but that's, sure. that's the majority here. And it's dangerous. We're, like, we're going to go with that stereotype, by the way. That's clean. Let's keep moving. I'm, I agree. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that's that's in the it's report. Factual. Itself. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. In, that's in the report. So it's it's there in the report, and it's there as part of their meeting notes. And so you know, he tells them like, "This isn't," and they say, "Yeah, we fired these people." And he goes, "Yeah, but it's going to keep happening." And it has happened, you know, and you have no right. idea how many people you didn't even catch. Right. Like the point is not that you're catching them. The point is that you let this keep happening because right. you've chosen to give all these engineers access to data. You shouldn't do this. You've got to limit who has access to what. That's like, that's a kind of like a privacy standard at a lot of other companies right. at this point. And, um, you know, he convinces them, but he makes a lot of enemies at right. the company with this decision. And that's kind of how we open it. And we set the stage for, you know, his entire time at the company, which is he comes in, he tries to make, you know, kind of, says, kind of tries to say, oh, these are best practices for security right. and privacy. And he makes a ton of enemies. So I'm reading this as a security practitioner. Right. And, and I have experience in the intelligence community where you're not allowed to spy on U.S. citizens, certainly not your prospective girlfriend mm-hmm. or your ex-wife or your husband or ex-husband or whatever. You just can't use these tools to do that. And, and yeah. it's, it's just, it's bizarre to me. And then, and then my mind goes to, and this is just the beginning of the book, by the way. And this is a relatively simple problem compared to some of the larger ones, in my opinion. But then it goes to, you know, think about nation states all they have to do is get access to the system mm-hmm. or somebody, any employee pretty much, because it's wide open. Well, of course. And of course they have done that, right? Like right. this is actually what we're getting to in the book. There was, um, it's funny, Eric, when you were saying the book is 300 and I can't remember how many pages. Uh, it was like 21 pages. I, I didn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The book is long. It's more than 300 pages. It's 300 pages till you get to the acknowledgement. How about that? There you go. Um, so there was a version of this book that was twice as long when we first oh, wow. finished it. And we had to cut half of it because we could have gone in so many different directions. I mean, at one point, okay. the Russia chapters alone mm. were like four whole chapters. 
<laughs> I mean, we, yes. we just had so much material and we had to, again, we had to trim it because we wanted to make it really readable. We wanted to make it more of a page turner. We were like, we can't spend 10 pages on this one thing, but yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, there are people who have spoken to us about how absolutely China and other countries have done exactly that. Mm-hmm. And you've left yourself vulnerable to nation states and to hacking by nation states by giving that level of employee access to user data. I mean, it takes open source intelligence to a whole new level. Right. 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 It's, it's, I just, as an intelligence with that, my background, I just looked at that and I was like, okay, yeah. this is a problem. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people that Alex Damos brings into the company are former NSA. They have yeah. intelligence yeah. backgrounds and yes, they all, they were, I mean, as the security team, they still ha- had access to quite a bit of that data, but we're talking about a group of like 12 people or 15 people right. as opposed to a group of, you know, 20,000 or whatever security people they currently have. Well, and to your point, they fired 52, but they really hadn't in, in that window, but they, they hadn't fixed the problem. You're, you're going to fire another 52 until you fix the problem. Right. Right. And that's, that's kind of like in some ways the theme here at Facebook, right? Is they keep, they have at the core of the company, a problem, which is that they have been motivated by growth. They have been motivated by, by growing as quickly as possible into new markets. They have been motivated by also business growth, which relies on keeping people online as much as possible. So for Facebook to be successful, they need to keep you hours a day, opening Mm -hmm. the app multiple times a day. And the only way to do that is creating algorithms that amp up emotive content. So you open your newsfeed, you open Instagram. The first thing you see is something that's going to inspire emotion in you. When you make that calculation, when that is at the core of you being successful as a business, how are you not going to inevitably have a problem with hate speech and misinformation? Right. Well, and if you're a nation state, once again, I think that you're very well aligned there. Yes. Right? That's that's exactly what they're trying to do. And now there's a U.S. social media platform. Well, there are many. We're not just talking Facebook here. Right. Where their whole business goal is aligned with you. We want to create emotion. We want to get people excited about things on both sides because that drives eyeballs and the eyeballs drives money and growth. Right. And it's interesting because here in the U.S., we have some safeguards for that. Like we have... Mm -hmm independent news organizations that, you know, counter some, some of that. We have many civil disobedience group. We have a long right. history of, of NGOs and, you know, we, we just have institutions where people can go to for other sources of information, which people trust with it. Right. And one of the things we, we try to do in the book is to show how in other countries where those don't exist, how the introduction of Facebook yes. is kind of like a worst case scenario. And, and the Myanmar is the most oh, obvious example. Wow. Of, what happens? And this, this, we have a whole chapter dedicated to Myanmar because it is like, okay, if you could create a situation, which is like everything that goes wrong, goes wrong. That is it. That was it. You have have the introduction of social media into a country which has no media literacy. So in the book, I talk about reporters in Myanmar in 2015, emailing Facebook and saying like, this is a, I was one of those reporters. I was in Yangon doing reporting um, on the introduction of the internet. And I was sending Facebook email after email saying, this is like, this is a tinderbox. This is bad. The the hate speech here is off the rails. And I was getting back these like form responses that were like, don't exaggerate. It's not that bad. Um, And that's what happens when you have an algorithm that amplifies up hate speech. Mm -hmm. People, a population where so many people I interviewed in Myanmar 
told me that, well, Facebook's an American company and surely they vet everything on their platform. And so if we're seeing it on Facebook, it must right. be real. It must wow. be real. Must be real. And, that, and they that, have let a, me ask And there was one content moderator, right? For for the, <laughs> the whole but reason. How much I mean, think about Myanmar. I mean, how much is Facebook really monetizing that? You know, it, it's almost not even a monetary thing, if you, if you right. ask me. Well, the amount of money it would cost them to be responsible in terms of their content right. moderation practices it, there yeah. probably doesn't make it financially. Profitable. You know, you, this is a country with over 100 languages that are spoken, and we can't get into this in the book because it's it's too complicated. But the typeface in Myanmar is also incredibly complex. They have so many characters in their alphabet that it makes it really difficult for Facebook's AI systems to even adequately monitor written content, which is usually like a a very easy thing for them to do in other countries right. with Latin alphabets. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why moder- mo- adequately, sorry, um, moderating content for Myanmar is really difficult and really expensive. And so that begs the question, like, why enter that market? Why even go and enter a market very aggressively, I should say, because Facebook was the internet in Myanmar for the longest time. It was um, through a program called Free Basics, where everybody got it for free on their phone. It just became the go-to, what everyone used. Nobody emailed each other there. People yeah. just... Facebook messaged each other. But it is free. So other than advertising and, and you know, providing rapid, well, you know, internet free. access. Free. Well, I mean, but you're not, you're not paying Facebook for, for a subscription. I'm paying them in my personal data though. I mean, what's, what's my birth date worth? You right, know what I mean? What's my location worth? I want to translate in that into dollars. But if you're in a third world country and you can now communicate with That's huge. your That's friends huge. at no additional cost. Right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe text messaging costs money there. I, I have yeah. no idea. Data, right? data Facebook's costs free. Money. Right. Yeah. Facebook, yeah. other than data charges, it's basically free. So, so you were just provided a, a, a communications capability you never had before. I totally. can see why adoption would be off the charts. Yeah. It was it makes it sense was to me. It was amazing. And people were, you know, amazed by the ability to talk to, I mean, this is a country where, um, before the introduction of a lot of these of cell phones, it was really the introduction of the cell phone that made it possible in Myanmar mm-hmm. because no, very, very few people, almost no one there has a computer, but they have right. cell phones. So telecommunication companies move in, all these cell phone towers go up. And in the middle of Yangon, sorry, this isn't in the book, but I just remember it from being there. In the middle of Yangon, there's this beautiful pagoda and it's a gold gilded pagoda thing. And, mm-hmm. um, all the streets around it used to be well known as streets where you would go to buy stamps and postcards because that was the way people talked to one another. You would right. send letters, right? The mail system there was the way you, you kept in touch with family and friends. And in the course of two to three years, all of those stores got replaced by cell phone stores and wow. cell phone carriers. And there were these shops. I, I love these shops. They just had the word Facebook in big letters and they would charge you the equivalent of like $2 or $3 to set up a Facebook account for you because people wow. didn't know enough about the internet to create an email address to make themselves a Facebook account. So they would pay somebody mm-hmm. two bucks or three bucks to create an email address for them on Gmail and then register a Facebook account for them because that that's how important it was to get on Facebook. And then off to the races. Yeah. yeah. At that point, they were good. They, they got up to speed quickly, I bet. And became more technology uh, literate. Yes, if you yes, they did become they did become incredibly active Facebook users. But again, I, I can't tell you how many people would pull out their phone and show me a video of ISIS because this is 2015, 2014, right? Um, show me a video of ISIS and say, "Look, this is a video of Rohingya Muslims killing Buddhists right. in Thailand." 
And I would say, no, no, that's ISIS in Syria in the middle of an execution. And they said, no, look at this caption. It says, it says right here in the caption that this is happening in Thailand. These are Rohingya killing Buddhists. And I said, no, 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 I can guarantee you that is a video from Syria. I, I used to report in Syria. I know. And they wouldn't believe me because the internet was telling them something else. And you can see how that quickly that stokes anger and hatred yes. and outrage. Absolutely. Rachel, what do we do, Rachel? Well, I mean, guys, that's the question, though. I mean, it's, you know, the price of innovation, right? And the price of connectivity and, you know, like WhatsApp, you can message people in Singapore. I have a friend in Singapore and we always WhatsApp and it's so easy. But, but yeah, what is the responsibility long term? Because you, you see such devices, divisiveness and there were decisions made during, you know, that, that one election that we all remember. And, you know, how do you not fact check? political ads. Um, and, and you're seeing this ramifications and, and, you know, clearly something needs to be done, but, but what's to be done? I mean, there's the federal government, there's big tech. Is it even possible for them to come to an agreement on, on kind of a way forward so we don't end up like Blade Runner 2049 dystopian future in five years? <laughs> so. You know, I, I get asked this question now that the book has come out. I get asked the question a lot. Right. And I, and I think there's certain things that are obvious, like, you know, I, <laughs> Early on in the 2015 campaign, Zuckerberg makes this call to allow um, Trump this carve out to say things that he would not allow. Like that to me. Because he's a political candidate running for the office of the president, he gets exactly. special treatment outside of their stated policies. Exactly. That is a domino effect decision, right? Where like the people sitting in the room that day, Mark Zuckerberg and his team and Sheryl Sandberg, I should add, they were making in their minds, they were making a one off decision. Right. Donald Trump says that that he's going to ban Muslims. And they say, yeah, that's probably hate speech. And we might remove it if the average person says it. But because it's Trump saying it and he's a candidate, as you just said, um, we're going to allow it. And they cannot in their imagine in their imagination, they're sitting here being like, oh, well, Americans are going to be outraged. They're going to say this, right. is, this is insanity. We can't ban Muslims from America. We have to let Americans see this because so many Americans are going to get angry when they see this. Right. They cannot imagine that what's actually happening is that their algorithms are boosting it and making it the most popular post on Facebook because mm -hmm. it's so even if you disagree with it, you're probably engaging it with an angry emoji or like exactly. You know, they don't, it's like they can't foresee how their own, even though they have all these examples from history that show them, no, this is exactly what's going to happen. You're actually going to make Donald Trump the most popular person on Facebook because he always says things that are so outrageous that people have to respond. Um, they can't see that for some reason. And so, yes, they essentially succeed in making him the most popular and probably the most powerful person on Facebook other than, well, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and they create a system by which populist leaders in other countries, such as the Philippines and Hungary and Turkey, can start using Facebook themselves as a way of messaging their own population and making sure that they are dominant within the local right. ecosystem of Facebook in their countries. It's truly frightening because this, because it's life and death. I mean, you know, I mean that you know one person can make a unilateral decision. And I mean, it literally impacts lives. Um, right. and, and again, yeah. I go back like, here in America, we have safeguards. I think we, we have many safeguards and I'm, I'm thinking right now, we do? you know, how, well, some, right. We, we have a okay. free press. We have, we have NGOs, we have, um, civil society groups. We have, mm -hmm. you know, we have other, we haven't, we're not, we're not, we're not in a country that's been a military dictatorship for 30 years or an autocracy or, or a monarchy for that matter. Right. Um, and so many people I've spoken to since the book came out has been like, oh, well, you know, Trump's off Facebook now and he's banned for two years. And I'm like, well, yes, but 
The Philippines is about to have really important elections. Hungary is about to have important elections. India has more, you know, there are countries that cannot wait two more years for Facebook to make up its mind on whether or not it's going to permanently ban Trump and what it's going to do about political figures all over the world. There are countries all over the world where this is still having life or death consequences. And to not address it, to not figure out systematically what Facebook's approach to political speech is going to be is incredibly dangerous. But they are, and, and this is something I found myself struggling with in the book. It, it's it's this constant yin and yang. It's it's this tension. Like, who determines what the right decision is? Right. I mean, very early on, it was it uh, Kaplan, Cap, Joel Kaplan. Joel Kaplan says something like, "Don't poke the bear." As yep. they're as they're going through the 2016 political, um, the 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 election time, and w- was that the right move? Or was it time then to do something and make a stand? But if you're going to make a stand, put yourself in Zuckerberg's shoes just Mm -hmm. for a second. How do you decide? You've got employees saying one thing. You've got advisors saying other things. You you know, it is a country where we have an open and free press and you have freedom of speech. Should you be allowed to, should you be allowed to talk about things and, and as a citizen use a platform to write something that is factually just wrong? Now, yeah. I totally fundamentally disagree with it, but I, I don't know where to draw that line. Right. So I think I think what's interesting and what we try to show in this book is Mark Zuckerberg struggles with these decisions. And he yeah. listens to people like Joel Kaplan. He, lis- he listens, well, sometimes to Sheryl Sandberg, though he kind of seems to stop listening to her at the end of the book. Um, he makes bad calls over and over again on what the right Agreed. thing is. Right. And yet, and this is what I would pose back to you, is despite making bad bad calls... He is not only in power, he has consolidated power. And you would think that given this track history that he's got going, he would say, maybe I'm not the one that should be making these calls. Maybe I need to bring in- Oh, come on. One of the richest guys in the world, one of the most famous companies in the world. I mean, you've got, think about his psyche and and I've never met the guy. Well, and I think with wartime CEO, I'm better than anybody. That was really fascinating. Sure. But but objectively, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. had a moment of hubris, wouldn't you sit there and say- Who does that? Um- well, <laughs> menches, you know, I think, um, I think people that, that, you know, have a moment to acknowledge the mistakes that they've made, which he, he, at least the PR line is that he acknowledges the mistakes that he's made. But, you know, our book came out two weeks ago, roughly, let's say, um, Rachel Mark read Zuckerberg- it two weeks ago in one sitting. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg did not, did not, you know, declined repeatedly to be interviewed for the book. He declined to be interviewed after the book was published, despite, you know, he knew it was a bestseller. He's not, he gets these reports. The first interview he gave after the book's publication was to Casey Newton, a fantastic journalist who writes a newsletter about Facebook. And do you know what he spent the entire time talking about? How he wants to turn Facebook into the metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> you better define that for most of our listeners. Right. Imagine the movie Ready Player One. It's like an mm-hmm. AI world where you live your entire life on Facebook. Like he's just had a book come out about Facebook, which is showing really systemic problems that are ongoing and really serious and a threat to democracies all over the world. And it, he doesn't address any part of that. Wow. He gives an entire interview where he talks about the metaverse. I get that. I, I really do. I mean, how old is he? He's uh, 37. 37 okay. So he's 37. He's relatively young, right? He's not Kissinger's age or anything, like with lots of wisdom and experience. He's one of the richest, most powerful people He's incredibly intelligent. Am I good so far? Yeah. 
And very few people have ever, probably his parents too, who sent him off to boarding school, if you remember, or sent him to boarding school. Very few people have probably ever said, that's a really bad idea. Or have you thought about this? Like, how, how often do you think he's been challenged? I, I get that from his perspective. I'm not justifying it. Yeah. But I get that. That's the way he thinks. It's incredibly dangerous to the rest of us, though. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Of course. That's why we have diversity. That's why we have, you know, that, that's why we, you know, one, we don't have dictatorships, at least in the United States, right? To protect yeah. ourselves from ourselves and to make ourselves better. And I think that's, again, like where we wanted to kind of leave readers is this idea that, um, you know, people thought Sheryl Sandberg was a safeguard. Like people really had their hopes banked on Sheryl Sandberg. Um, but yes, we see a lot of her power diminished at the end of the book. And, you know, even Sheryl Sandberg, ultimately, I know she's a woman and I know she wrote about Lean In, but she's been there for a decade. There are not very women up there in the executive no. ranks with her. Yes. Um, up until two years ago, they had more men named Chris who were executives at Facebook than they did women. You know, that, that's a that's Women a total, not women named Chris. Yes, women. Yeah, women total, yeah. <laughs> women total. That's a problem. And, and, and I just, you know, if you take aside women versus men for a minute, because I, I think that's one part of it, but diversity is also about diversity yes. of background and experience. Mm -hmm. And thought, and, and yes. yes. Thought. And, and you have just this suite of executives who like, you know, Mark, you started, you talked about his, he went to Exeter, he went to the most prestigious boarding school mm -hmm. in America, then he goes to Harvard, and then he's basically, you know, a, a runaway success in Silicon Valley. This is not a person who's in the dark side of the world. No. And then you have Cheryl Sandberg, exactly. very similar, right? Like none of them have, it's funny when they make mistakes and I, I can't speak about which person it was at Facebook because it was an off record interview, but I had an off record interview with someone very, very senior there once who said, um, you know, we fail to see around the dark corners. We don't, we don't mm -hmm. think to look around corners. Just, right. And I kept thinking, well, of course you don't. You're not people who have ever had anything really bad happen to you. Right. Right. I'm not going to say that, but they've, I'm sure you know, death has happened or something like that, but they don't have people saying no, they haven't had that right. experience. When I say bad, I don't, what I mean is, sorry, and I, and I say this because I, I, I mentioned this uh, in our pre-interview, we were chatting a little bit, you know, I was a reporter in the Middle East for 10 years. Like I right. covered war yes. and women and, bad. you know, um, really horrible things that on happened the front lines. on the yeah. front lines. You know, you think differently when you've been exposed to that, when you've yes. ex been exposed to that level of human misery and human tragedy, and also what people do when they're truly desperate, right. when they're when they're in the, those, that is a different way of thinking about the world. And and I found that when I, you know, I I also had this unique experience where I went straight from covering the Middle East to covering to moving to Oakland and and covering tech companies, <laughs> and it was really jarring for me because I, I went from I look at things and I go, my first thought is like, how will it get misused? Who, what are the bad guys going to do? And my, my husband laughs at me. I often say like, well, what are the baddies doing? That's, that's something I use with my toddler. I'm like, how are baddies <laughs> going to use it? And I'm like, no one at Facebook has ever like taught a kindergarten class and looked at the class and been like, what are the baddies doing? You know, like, it's just not where their head goes. No, it's the art of the possible, the future. Right. And that's, and that's a good thing also. But that's where the diversity, I think. You need both. Really you need yeah. both. Absolutely. You can't run a company only thinking about the bad. But you need really strong voices in the room. Not Absolutely. like, I'm not talking about like the token security guy analyst in the corner that's like, hey, look at me. No, you need like executives who are empowered, who are in the room saying, here's how bad guys are going to use this. Right. I, I almost equate this as we're talking through it and, and some of the you know work I've done over my career to nuclear weapons, proliferation mm -hmm. and use, right? Nuclear power can be used for good or bad. 
the mm-hmm. airplane, good or bad. I mean, hell, you can go to fire, good or bad. If you if you're in IT, IT, good or bad. And I agree a hundred percent with you. Yeah. I, I think there's a responsibility here. You create this amazing capability, but right. what do I'm going to try not to butcher this? You know, what will the baddies do with it? How will they mis misuse it, abuse it to harm people? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, the thing, again, where the book, I probably shouldn't talk about where the book ends because I want people who listen to this actually to buy the book. And (laughs) if you get them to start reading it, you'll be okay. You got to get them to start. But, but, you know, I think that, that one of the places we end is that those voices in the room that were doing that, whether they're the people that founded WhatsApp or Alex Stamos or Eisenstadt, but the people in the room who were brought in to do that all leave Facebook ultimately they lost those outside voices because nobody was listening to them or they were pushed yeah. out. Well, right. Or they couldn't change. And, and at some point you're beaten down and it's no yeah. fun going well, you're to deemed work an alarmist, you right? And, yeah. You know, just write it off that you're an alarmist and then it actually comes to pass. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Um, well, so, you know, ostensibly this platform though is enabling, you know, I think nation state attackers and, and, and other, you know, groups with ill wills. And, you know, we, I, I think coming to, coming back to the security standpoint, you know, a lot of talk is about disclosure, right? And, you know, what is the responsibility of someone like a Facebook, right? I, I think they had found some Iranian-based hackers leveraging the platform to target U.S. military personnel, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, but but it's a quite an enabling platform, as we talked about. So then, you know, kind of what does that lens look like for folks like Facebook or, or Twitter or otherwise? I mean, what's their responsibility here? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that Facebook's security team is fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. They, I think, have really developed one of the best capabilities of any security team in terms of finding nation state attackers. And that is a mandate. And, and part of the reason is that the executives of the company have given them that mandate, right? Okay. They've said to them, here's a team of experts. They come, most of them from government intelligence backgrounds or really specific country expertise in Iran and Russia. And we want you to spend a lot of time looking for these attackers. And now we get these regularly published CIB reports, coordinated inauthentic behavior. And I think that it is incredibly, um, it is an incredible thing that they're doing, not just here in the United States, but I would say globally, because a lot of these CIB reports are not about the U.S. They're about, you know, Russian, you know, Russian attempts at spreading disinformation in Ukraine or, you know, Iran and Israel constantly. So there's a lot there that is helpful. I think where Facebook is still struggling is actually one where we started this conversation, which is what do you do about misinformation right. about yeah. the right for Americans to say things to other Americans that, that are, you know, might be categorically false, but it's still their right. And I think there where we go back to is this question of, okay, people have the right to say things to one another. That's, I'm not going to challenge that. I'm a journalist. I believe in free speech. The, there's a great quote by Renee DeResta, which is that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Right. And that's where I get stuck. Which is say what you want, but why does Facebook need to amplify it? Exactly. Right? Like you don't believe oh, in that. How do you? How do you? Where do you draw that line? Right? I can oh, publish I, I it draw, in the I newspaper. Algorithmic recommendations and amplification. Right? So okay. I ran. Okay. I ran an experiment last week where I joined a group. I, I, again, I live up in Northern California, so Facebook knows my geography. There's a lot of anti-vax people where I live. Um, I joined a group for natural cures for the common cold because I wanted to see what would happen. Within one click, Facebook was pushing me into an anti-vaccine group. Wow. That was the next group recommendation was 
vaccines cause autism in kids, right? So that is where I get stuck, which is, it's one thing to say, should this group exist? Whatever, freedom of speech, they can exist. Why are you recommending that people join these groups when your own studies tell you that it is dangerous to push people into those groups? Okay, so I want to get your opinion here because you are clearly more an expert than Rachel and I are, at least me. Um, what What if Facebook had pushed you to the CDC or the national uh, NHS in the UK, a reputable source on vaccinations. That's what they should do. You're good with that. Yeah, I, I'm okay. fine with authority. I, I am also. I, I don't know where I, that line is. But that's what, and, and in fact, that's what Facebook's policies are. This is the right. tricky part, right? Is that Facebook technically tells reporters all the time, well, our policy is not to push people towards anti-vaccine groups or conspiracy groups. And yet that's still what their algorithms are doing. So even when they decide as a company, they're not going to do something anymore, they still struggle with it. And I right. think that's what's so hard for me as a reporter is I'm like, well, you tell me you're not going to do this thing, but I can see with through my own experiences at Facebook that you're still doing these things and you're still pushing people towards these groups that are really dangerous, especially in the time of a pandemic to be pushing. Why do you think so? Because that's what their algorithms are telling them. All about the algorithm. Yeah. Because that's what people join. Like I, I, I also understand that, which is you know, if you if you look at the studies that have been done by psychologists about conspiracy movements, and sorry, I'm using the word conspiracy quite broadly here. I know it's I'm not sure if the anti-vaccine movement is or not conspiratorial, but for a minute, let's just classify it there. Psychologists have shown that the biggest indicator of believing in a conspiracy is prior belief in a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. OK, so whatever it is you're joining, whether it's like. I don't know, uh, flat earth or, you know, whatever, just name your, you're going to, you're going to automatically be be pushed into other conspiratorial groups because that's what every algorithm shows human psychology wants. It doesn't mean that that's what's good for you. And here I use an analogy of junk food and sugar because I don't think Facebook's like tobacco, right? Like I think some people make that comparison. I think it's a little extreme. Like, you know, it's not drugs. It's not heroin. It's, it's sugar. Sugar. It's like, it's like, it tastes really good. It's not good for you, but it tastes really good. And so you have a little bit. And then if you don't have you a really more. strong, right, you want more, unless right. you have a dentist sitting next to you, which I'm, <laughs> the CDC is the dentist in this scenario. <laughs> no, bad cavities. Remember the last cavity you got? That really sucked. Like you don't want more cavities. Exactly. Well, and that, and that's what kind of, I remember in the book and, you know, I guess it you know, one of the the hearings he was in talking about breaking up, you know, the world of Facebook and and yet the the flip side of that with that interview, the metaverse, right? And right. creating this and, and that's truly frightening when when you start if you cascading this across the entirety of one's, you know, um being, right, in, in every aspect of your your living life then this becomes the only reality you know. It's truly frightening. And I, you could imagine if, if you're young and, you know, that's how you're raised, I, I would be so scared for children because then you don't, are you really making decisions for yourself? You know, and that's a critical right. you, part of becoming You don't learn that critical thought process. A person, exactly. And that's, that's what truly frightens me. But how do you regulate that? I mean, who's looking out for that, you know, in the name of convenience? You know? Yeah, that's a great Tough question. I, I think about that a lot. Um, I have two small kids. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I spend a lot of time thinking about what misinformation is going to be like for my kids. You know, AI and deep fakes, and they're going to see things that look really real but are not. Like how, if we don't right now, including here in the United States, start media literacy? Like when we were kids, we would go to the library. We'd learn how to yes. use those cards and find accurate sources of information and what was accurate. 
how do you implement a program like that now so that we're not dealing with a problem, you know, 20 years down the line where Mm -hmm. it's totally out of our, you know, out of our control and our capabilities to even begin this kind of education. And and you're coming at it from the perspective of a very well-versed, educated person in this space. Imagine somebody in Syria who's dodging bullets and bombs and just trying to survive in food. They're never going to get there. But I I will tell you, and I I printed something that I've used in the past for this, uh, for this discussion from CISA, the war on pineapple. Rachel, I don't know if you remember it. I used it in an op-ed piece I did once, but CISA, and we'll link to it in the show notes. They've got like a five-step process on how foreign nation states use misinformation and disinformation to skew, to skew the readers. So from an education perspective, go get educated, go understand how people are trying to, or the algorithms, as we say here, you know, as we, as we've been talking about, may skew you in the right direction and then go find those reputable sources. We, we need to train people on how to find the reputable sources. I think even more than critical thinking, right? Like at least read, at least read what the experts are saying. Yeah. Determine their experts and And, read that. The U S it's funny. I don't, I don't, in some ways I don't think the U S understands their power in this as well, because Mm -hmm. when the U S starts these kinds of programs, so many countries follow suit. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking of countries across Latin America right now that are struggling with this as well. Like it's just, it, it, it needs, you know, and the the few countries that are doing it, by the way, I think Singapore and Estonia are among Mm -hmm. the only two countries in the world that are currently have media literacy programs as part of curriculums for small kids. They're already seeing tremendous results in how smart kids are getting about what they share online and how they use social media. Yeah. I, you know, and I, that's a great point, Shira, because I I think a lot of these countries too, they're like, where do we start? How do we move forward? And then the U S provides, provides that path forward, you know, and, and you can learn. And that's so much of the information sharing, right. That we talk about in security. That's so valuable. Um, you know, and and it's kind of the first domino to to push down and that's how you get there. And Um, Shira said at the beginning of the discussion, right. I think it was Myanmar. The, the, the individual was saying, well, it came from the U S Right. So they're inclined to believe it. Yeah. Or if, scary. You're, or if you're, you know, I, this is a whole chapter that got cut from the book about the uh, Arab uprisings of 2011. But, you know, a lot of pro-democracy activists all over the world use Facebook because they think they're going to be safe there. And that's what we saw in Tahrir Square. Um, and ultimately, just a few years later, when the military coup happened and they began arresting, well, they began with arresting LGBT groups in, mm-hmm. in Egypt. And then they moved on to the Muslim Brotherhood. All these Egyptians that were getting arrested were saying, but I put it on Facebook and Facebook is American. Like, why wasn't I protected? Wow. That's, yeah. that's so scary. scary. I mean, yeah. the power of a company like Facebook, part of it is that it is American and has that, that shine, that gleam to it. Mm-hmm. But again, there isn't that literacy of like, oh, well, if I put something on here, my own government can use it against me. Yeah. And there is no guarantee that it is real. It is no guarantee that it is fact checked by anyone. Like those are really important things that if you're Facebook and your motto is um, connect the world, I think is maybe their current motto. Mm-hmm. It's not connect the world responsibly and teach people that things they may see on Facebook are also not real and might be hate speech and lead them down a path of misinformation. Yeah. It's connect the world at all at any cost. Uh, right. Well, and I, the first I, one I don't want to just... The, the book is about Facebook, which I think is a great platform to discuss the challenges that face societies these days. Right. But this is really any social media platform. In fact, Sherry, you, you spoke about, I just saw an article the other day as, as I was reading, actually, I think it was today. It's not only the big platforms that spread misinformation, 
from vaccine skeptics, right? So there are a lot of organizations out here, large and small, that have similar type of responsibilities. Facebook, arguably the biggest. Yeah. I think we, we wanted to focus on Facebook because it was the biggest. People often ask us this, like, what about YouTube? What about Twitter? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Right. Facebook's the biggest. Between the three family of apps, we're talking about over 3 billion people using their products. Like, this is bigger than the Catholic Church, the height of their power, ultimately. Um, right, a third of the world, maybe, population-wise? Yeah. And they should lead by example, though, right? I mean, isn't that the responsibility when you're number one, right. that you do lead responsibly and, and that others is will it? follow? Is well, it or is it just sheer profit and growth? <laughs> I mean, uh, real legitimate question. They're at a point right now, they're a trillion dollar company. They're one of the first tech companies to reach that, you know, that, that, that title of becoming a trillion dollar company. Do you say it might cost us a couple billion, but we won't be first in that market or we'll grow a little bit slower? Like, do you make that, at what point do you make that calculation of we're okay with our growth slowing down a little bit if it comes at the cost of being more responsible about how people and setting an industry-wide standard. I mean, that would be the other thing. They, they're the only ones in a position to set an industry-wide standard. Exactly. And I think how you'd much have money to is enough? adjust I mean- goals though. <laughs> I, th- I think your goals have to change from being the biggest, the best, the most profitable, whatever it may be, connecting the world. Yeah. Doing it responsibly puts some drag on the system. Right. Yeah. And as a culture, that's a cultural change in my in my 25 years of experience in, in the business world. Hey, I need you to go fast, but not too fast. And I want to do I want you to do it carefully. Yeah. Right. Like, it, there's some tension there. Yeah, absolutely. And it would mean going against the entire ethos of Silicon Valley, which I'm sure isn't which easy. Is tough. Some, right. right. It's tough. It's tough. But. I don't know. Are you big enough? Are you rich enough to finally do that? Right. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, I think we've seen enough, you know, kind of bodies littered on the highway, just to use a, you know, analogy or euphemism, whatever that is. Uh, (laughs) I'm like hungry for lunch. Um, You know, but I, I think there's enough that's, that's pointed to us that this, you have to do this. Like we've seen all the problems that have happened in lives lost, right? Little lives lost when you're, you're not thinking this way. And at some point it's just wholly irresponsible. I almost um, think it's a bigger not, challenge, right? Yeah. To be the biggest, the baddest, to grow the fastest, that Silicon Valley drive, I understand it. I've worked with Silicon Valley, four Silicon Valley companies for my whole career. But I think the bigger challenge is to do it responsibly. Right. I want you to be the biggest, I want you to be the best, but I want you to do it in this manner. Right. I want you to do it safely or, or whatever it may be. We see the same thing in cybersecurity companies, right? They want to, or, or yeah. software companies. They want right. to ship product as quickly as possible. They don't put the money into security that they should have. All of them. Right. Yeah. Why? We got these material goals. We've got these, these goals as organizations to get it out there. I, I think that's a better, a higher challenge. Yeah. yeah. Can you survive though? Can you keep up? That's the question people struggle with. Well, I think if you're a trillion dollar company, yeah, you're you're good. Yeah. I think you're good. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to yeah. say that. I do want to be mindful of Shira's time because you're on vacation. But so <laughs> one last question though. Okay, I would love to read a part 2 just throw your notes and outtakes in a part 2 book. I don't care what they look like. And, you know, they could be handwritten notes, but I want to see those other 400 pages. <laughs> you want to see my my whole chapter on the, the Arab uprisings of 2011? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm 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 hungry for that book, so uh, let me know when it's out there because I'll be the first one to buy it for sure. Thank you so much. 
Awesome. All right. Well, we'll let you get back to your vacation. Thank you so much, Shira, for joining us today. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Again, congratulations on a book. It's, it's just this wonderful was, read. This made you think. This was a thought piece today. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. An important thought piece. for sure. Always, Very. always my goal. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thank you for joining this week's episode. And until next time, be safe. Subscribe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.